Thank you, Mr. Ricknair, and greetings to everyone here and everyone around the world. Uh, welcome to our guests. We have 183 here today, so glad you all could make it. As was announced, my wife and I were in Atlanta, Georgia last weekend, and uh, actually Marietta, which is about 20 miles northwest of the central Atlanta. And the Atlanta brethren pass on their greetings to Dr. And Mrs. Meredith and all of the Charlotte congregation. As was announced, we had 120 Tomorrow's World subscribers and viewers attend the Tomorrow's World Bible Lecture. Uh, it was a little touch and go whether we were even going to hold the lecture uh, because uh, Mr. Jack Lowe and Mr. Franz were looking around all the hotels and to have rent a hotel for a large enough audience would have cost around three to $5,000. And uh, so they were about ready to give up when Dr. Franz, an administrator at Life University, walked into the administration office and asked if they rented any of their auditoriums and said, well, we just happened to have a cancellation. And so we were able to have Sabbath service there in the morning and uh, the Bible lecture in the afternoon, and the price was zero. So from uh, God just blessed uh, Mr. Franz and uh, Jack Lowe and having that. And by the way, uh, you could send up a prayer right now. Mr. Jack Lowe is right now, this moment, speaking to the follow-up lecture in the, um, actually it's at the Doubletree there in Atlanta. And, uh, of course, they'll be serving refreshments to the guests, and they will watch the guests have their refreshments. <clears throat> but uh, Mr. Lowe is uh, giving the uh, follow-up Bible lecture as we speak. So you can uh, give, uh, send up a prayer for him. And at these Bible lectures, uh, our brethren in ministry are often impressed by meeting those who heard the World Tomorrow program years ago. Uh, we think of those who've gone astray as lost sheep and are now coming back into the main fold. Let's turn to Matthew, the ninth chapter. I think of Jesus' compassion in Matthew 9. Matthew 9 and verse 37 then he said to his disciples, The harvest twenty uh, truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. But what elicited that comment? Verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. And it's amazing just how many people are like that that we meet at tomorrow's World Bible Lecture. We'd be praying that more laborers are sent into the harvest. It's very encouraging to see some of those coming back now to the body of Christ after being gone for so long, and for some who have never moved from just studying the literature 40 or 50 years ago, but are now being motivated to take a step forward to belong to the body of Christ. In 2009, God's ministers around the world gave 50 Tomorrow's World Bible lectures, and we're on track this year to do more of the same. In Matthew 10:23. Uh, Jesus said that, uh, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And we are going through many of the cities of Israel. Uh, Dr. Meredith is planning to uh, give a lecture in Dallas and uh, maybe in London. Uh, we're also in Atlanta, New York, Los Angeles uh, this year. 
So, uh, again, we're very thankful for the doors that Christ is opening up and the leadership Dr. Meredith is giving us. We realize that God has called us not just for salvation, but for a purpose and a mission. And we thank God for that privilege to preach the gospel through the open doors that Christ is giving us. But we have to make sure that in order to fulfill that mission, that we remain humble, responsive, yielded, that we are cooperating and following his guidance in accomplishing <clears throat> that mission. Where was it? I was just, uh, oh, I, I guess uh, just as I started to give the lecture uh, there in uh, Marietta, Georgia, Mr. Franz brought up a, a cup of tea, and I'm looking for it right now. But I, I kind of said to the uh, audience there, I said, oh, well, thank you for my Georgia white lightning. And anyway, they all laughed, and I appreciated that. <clears throat> it would be nice to have some of that right now. So today we are humbling ourselves through fasting. One of the first attempts that I had of studying the Bible topically was to choose the subject of fasting. And so I got a concordance and I looked up all the references to fast or fasting. And one of the impressive stories that I ran across was 1 Kings 21. Let's turn to 1 Kings 21. Well, I found out that when you do such a study that you not only find a sentence in which the word fast or fasting occurs, but you have to expand your study to understand a full story. And this was a fascinating story. This was the story of Naboth is murdered for his vineyard. Naboth was a neighbor of King Ahab. And uh, King Ahab wanted, he coveted, wanted lusted after Naboth's vineyard. So in chapter 21, Naboth said, to verse 3, Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab, verse 4, went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And so Ahab lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat food. You talk about a spoiled kid. He just did not get his toy. He was, what was he, was repenting? No, he wasn't repenting. He was sorrowful because he didn't get his way. Oh, but now comes a solution. Jezebel, verse 5, his wife came to him and said, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? Because Naboth didn't give me my vineyard. And he said, <clears throat> and Jezebel said, Now I'll get it for you, uh, verse 7. So she set up false witnesses, and they executed Naboth, and uh, King Ahab took over Naboth's vineyard by fraud and by uh, deceit and by Jezebel sending up false witnesses to have Naboth executed. So what happened? Well, Elijah, the prophet, came to him, and uh, he said in verse 17, um, well, God told Elijah, verse 18, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession of it. And so Elijah pronounced a death penalty upon King Ahab for his evil. He says in verse uh, 21, Behold, I will bring calamity on you. 
I will take away your posterity and will cut off Ahab from every male in Israel, both bond and free. And I will make your house like that, the house of Jeroboam. And then concerning Jezebel, verse 23, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Verse 25, notice this, there is no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And we've seen as ministers um, various men who we thought had potential for leadership in the church, and yet their wives took them in a different direction. And so it's important that both wives humble themselves and husbands humble themselves. They can work as a team with the right kind of leadership and cooperation. Uh, but uh, we don't, I hope we don't have any Jezebel. Well, if you, your name is Jezebel, I guess we can, fig- we can uh, forgive you for that. But I hope we don't have any Jezebels in character as uh, portrayed here. But notice, <clears throat> verse 27, what did Ahab do? When Ahab heard those words, that he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his body, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about mourning. The word of the Eternal came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Verse 29, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? He'd already pronounced the death penalty on him. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. What a remarkable lesson. The most wicked king of Israel, upon whom Elijah had announced the death penalty, humbled himself, and God said, I will not bring the calamity upon him. The lesson is very profound, that here this individual humbled himself before God. So that is one of the greatest lessons that we should learn on this day of fasting. I was listening to uh, Dr. Meredith's sermon, which is being played today uh, around the world, and he mentioned again that the fundamental reason for fasting is to humble ourselves. The world, of course, uses it to try to use political gain or to twist people's arm. They, They go on a hunger fast to try to convince people to agree to their way. That's not godly fasting. But as we humble ourselves today, what lessons should we learn? What changes should we make in our lives? It's just three weeks from tomorrow night is the Passover. And Dr. Meredith gave a sermon last week on preparing for the Passover, and that should be played as a must-play in our uh, congregations uh, for one of the next three Sabbaths. And today, of course, as we heard in the announcements, all of uh, the church congregations are seeing and hearing Dr. Meredith's sermon recorded, especially for today's fast, and that was recorded on February 6th. And in one way, it would be good to hear it again today. But in today's sermon, I'd like to first review our stated purpose for today's fast, and purposes, plural, and then consider one vital attitude that we need until the return of the Savior. And that attitude is the quality of repentance. So what purposes were announced for the fast today? Number one is to honor God. We do this by humbling ourselves before him. Let's turn to Micah, the sixth chapter, Micah 6. We realize that here is a profound way of life, something that we should have internalized. Micah 6 And verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, 
And what does the eternal require of you? But to do justly, are you honest? Are you keeping your word? Do you not uh, steal? Do you give rather than take? But to do justly, to love mercy, are you compassionate? Are you considerate of others? Micah 6, verse 8, and to walk humbly with your God. We acknowledge God's greatness. We acknowledge him as the creator, the lawgiver, the life giver, the sustainer, the designer, the one who fulfills prophecy, the one who answers prayers. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient. He has all knowledge. He's omnipresent through his spirit, Psalm 139. So God is great, and he has a plan. He's called the father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named in Ephesians, the third chapter. So we're fasting today to humble ourselves before God and to honor him. James, the fourth chapter, in verse 7, I think uh, Dr. Meredith quoted that in the sermon that's being played in other churches around the world today. James 4 and verse 7. Mr. Armstrong called these the two initiatives that we have to put forth some effort. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee near you, from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The two initiatives are to resist the devil, and the second to draw near to God. And how often have I prayed that? Father, I'm drawing near to you. I claim your promise that you draw near to me. Have you ever prayed that way? It's a promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, you're playing games with yourself. You're thinking, well, I, I'm going to church, so I'm doing good things, but at the same time, you're thinking all kinds of sinful images or thoughts or ideas. Lament and mourn and weep. Oh, how many of you have actually, and don't raise your hands, how many of you actually wept, shed tears because you repented? You were sorry for what you've done in the past or how you may have offended someone or how you transgress God's commandments. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And how much of the world just laughs at sin? It's joy to them. But they don't realize, as it tells us in Galatians 6, as you sow, so shall you reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. And yet they joy in sin, in lasciviousness, and in fraud, and all kinds of evils. So God says, look, you're laughing? You better turn that laughing around. And you might do some mourning and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So if you're downcast, God can lift you up. If one of the purposes of the fast today is to honor God. The second uh, reason is to draw us even closer together before the Passover. God's people around the world today are unified in seeking God. We need to be closer to one another, and we need to be closer to God. Now, let's look across the page here, James 5 and verse 16. James 5 verse 16 says, Confess your trespasses one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. 
The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So we draw close to another, one another by praying for one another, loving one another, serving one another, and helping one another. I remember one time uh, an example, a very simple example, but I just can't forget it. Uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong in a sermon or a Bible study one time said, Some of you don't feel close to me. Now, why is that? Now, if God is up here and you are here and I am here, neither of us is close to God. But if God is here and I'm close to God and you're not close to God, we're not going to be close to one another. But if God is here, I'm close to God, and you are close to God, we will be close to one another. A very simple illustration. But it's very true that if we are close to God, we can be close to one another. That's the second reason for the fast, is to draw us closer together. A third reason, and of course Dr. Meredith did not enumerate these, I'm just giving them for your help and outlining your notes. A third one is to seek God wholeheartedly and draw close to Him. Of course, Dr. Meredith mentioned that several times in his letter and in his email. To seek God wholeheartedly and to draw close to Him. So how close do you feel you are to God? We just read, if we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. Dr. Meredith wrote, We as a church need to seek God in prayer and fasting more than ever. So how do you do that? Sometimes when we're counseling newcomers and we're encouraging them to seek God, and they say, well, how how should I seek God? Well, Daniel 9 is always a good answer to that question. So let's turn back to Daniel 9. Ezekiel, Daniel, and chapter 9. Daniel 9. Daniel understood that Jeremiah's prophecy that 70 years would be accomplished in the desolation of Jerusalem. Verse 3, Daniel 9. Then Daniel says, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer, supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now God tells us not to uh, rend our clothes, but to rend our hearts in the New Covenant, but he said he was going to seek God by prayer and supplications with fasting. And supplication means continual coming to God, not giving up. As we read a few weeks ago in Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow who kept coming to the judge. And even though he was an unjust judge, he went ahead and solved the widow's problems. And God says, how much more? Will he not intervene for you to those who cry out day and night? But notice also in verse 4, And I prayed to the Eternal my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Have you confessed any sins? I won't ask if you confessed any this morning, but have you confessed any sins recently? So, well, I, I, I really don't know of any sins. Well, uh, that would kind of 
indicate spiritual blindness. And, of course, uh, Revelation 3 tells us about a church that is blind and naked. If you can't see your sins, ask God to show you your sins, and he will. God will reveal that to you. A third purpose here is to seek God wholeheartedly and draw closer to him. And uh, while we're here in Daniel, let's turn over to chapter 6 and verse 10, where, of course, Daniel, knowing that the decree was written, which would uh, result in his being thrown into the lion's den, he still prayed anyway on his knees three times that day, verse 10, Daniel 6, and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days, knowing he was going to be thrown into the lion's den because he was petitioning the true God rather than the king. And yet it was three times that day. We sang earlier the hymn here in the congregation, Psalm 55. And, of course, Psalm 55, verse 17, David says, Evening, morning, and at noon will I cry to you. So there are three times a day, and I hope that you've made that at least a conceptual habit in your life, to think about praying three times a day. The third reason for the fast is to seek God wholeheartedly and draw closer to Him. Number four is to ask God to bring separated brethren together. Let's turn to Luke, the 15th chapter. Uh, This is the parable of lost sheep I already Mention our experience with the Bible lectures and seeing those who are lost sheep, some who are coming back, and we, we know that even in our own experience here locally in Charlotte, that over the past three and four years, there have been several that have come back. Some of you have been that lost sheep, and you're back with us in the fold, and we're very happy about that and very thankful for that. Uh, Dr. Meredith wrote in his email to the churches, We need to, quote, wholeheartedly seek God and ask the Father and our head, Jesus Christ, to bring more and more of his faithful people together into one church so a truly significant work may be accomplished, end of quote. So when you have 300 or 400 little scattered groups that aren't supporting a main thrust of preaching the gospel, you're limiting the preaching of the gospel. But as those scattered people can come back into the body, we have more help than in preaching the gospel. There are thousands of lost sheep and separated brethren that could be redeemed and restored to accomplish God's work. Luke 15, and here we have the parable of the lost sheep. We have the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost son. Verse 4, Jesus said, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Uh, There are 99 just people who don't need repentance. And again, we need to think of Isaiah 64 about uh, self-righteousnesses. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Some think they are just and have not had this humble, repentant attitude that they should. 
But we want those lost sheep to be found. So let's be praying for those that are lost, those who are separated, that they can join the main body of the church and be able to assist in proclaiming the gospel to the world to fulfill that mission to the world. Number five is to pray for our spiritual needs and the needs of the work. In your church bulletin, you have the message from Dr. Meredith in which he talks about the upset, the weather and unusual storms, the economic downturn, yet we truly need to be able to do more, not less, in reaching out to this world on television, on the Internet, and hiring more ministers and servants to help do the work. All this takes a great deal of money, and many of God's people are hurting at this time. So we certainly need to pray for God's intervention and mercy. So we need to pray for the needs of the work and our spiritual needs. We need God's Holy Spirit more in abundance. We need more of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In an upcoming Living Church News, that will be May-June 2010, Dr. Scott Winnell wrote this in an article, Are You Preparing for God's Spiritual Gifts? Quote, We pray for these gifts. We beseech God in fasting. And we patiently trust that God's timing will be perfect when he pours them out en masse on his church. End of quote. We have a special calling, as we heard Mr. Lyons bring out in the sermonette. It is unique. We have opportunities. We have responsibilities. But we need to, again, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Dr. Meredith also writes, We need deliverance from all kinds of trials and from the assaults of Satan. So again, be sure to read that section in the church bulletin. And what else do we need? We, quote, desperately need God's divine protection, his guidance, his healing, and his inspiration. So number five is to pray for our spiritual needs and the needs of the work. We've just reviewed our purposes for fasting today, and at the end of the day, we should be encouraged to fulfill those purposes and to go forward supporting God's work with more faith, more enthusiasm, and dedication. When we study the biblical principles for fasting, we study the lives of God's people and others who fasted. We find fasting associated with repentance. We all need an attitude of repentance. Are you teachable? Can you take correction? Are you committed to maintain a repentant attitude until the return of Christ? And I'll encourage all of you as you think about that, as you prepare for the Passover, are you committed to have a repentant attitude until the return of Jesus Christ? I hope you will make that commitment. So when we survey the world's peoples and nations and the world's religions, how many of those people have truly repented. I've heard uh, preachers on radio, I've watched them on television here recently, and they'll say, give your heart to the Lord, which is fine. We should give our heart to the Lord. But they do, what do they say, you should repent? No. Well, there will be a, an occasional minister uh, on radio or television that will say that. Dr. Meredith wrote in the Tomorrow's World magazine, July, August 2005, the missing R word. What is the least understood word in modern churchianity? The answer may surprise you. And, of course, the answer is repentance. Have you repented? 
And do you repent every once in a while when you know something is brought to your mind that you need to change, that you're guilty of, and you need to make some correction in your life? There's another article Dr. Meredith wrote, a very significant and fundamental article, The Danger of False Conversion. That was July, August 2002. False conversion is very common. I'll just read from that section. Frankly, most people attending the churches of this world, though having been baptized by them, never really knew what to repent of. They did not know what sin really is. At the time of their baptism, most people sincerely intend to do better, quote-unquote, or make their peace with God, quote-unquote. But since they have not been taught what sin actually is, they completely fail to see how rotten and sinful they have really been. They never really repent. They are not broken up about the wretched state of their lives and their own human vanity and selfishness, which expresses itself constantly in all of us. So who in here has not repented? Don't raise your hands, please. But think deeply. Some of you have not repented. And yet that's the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he went preaching the gospel in Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. Repent and believe in the kingdom of God. And so we need to believe that gospel. Repentance is required of all human beings. Let's turn to Acts, the 17th chapter. Acts 17. So, well, God is not calling everyone at this time. That's correct. But nonetheless... The message to every single human being on the face of the earth, whether God is calling them or not calling them, is repent. And here the Apostle Paul was in Athens, and you know the story that he came across this monument and said to the unknown God. And so he says, well, let me tell you about this unknown God. Verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Now, is that sentence, that scripture, part of your thinking, a part of your character? In Him we live and move and have our being. That's who you are. That's who you should be. As also some of your own poets, he's telling the Greeks, have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. God commands everyone, all human beings, to repent. Well, just what is repentance? Our Bible study course, Lesson 11, has a section on what is real repentance. How important is repentance? Many preachers and evangelists tell their listeners to believe in Jesus, yet few seem to say much about the subject of repentance. Note the word for repent in both the Hebrew and the Greek language carries the meaning of turning. The theological word book of the Old Testament says that the word goes, quote, 
beyond contrition and sorrow to a conscious decision of turning to God. So again, it isn't just a matter of sorrow, but it is a matter of action and turning our thinking around. These are uh, definitions, uh, well, I'll give you just one of them from uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong in What Do You Mean the Unpardonable Sin? Page 13. Repentance is a change of mind and attitude. It is a change from this carnal attitude of hostility toward God, of rebellion against God's law, to the opposite attitude of love, submission, obedience, and worship of God, and reliance on Him. The Greek word is metanoia, which means a change of mind. And so we appeal to people in our television audience and in our readership to change their thinking, to challenge their thinking, to prove all things, and to read what is in the Bible, and to begin to understand it. So repentance is a change of thinking, of mind and attitude, and one that turns around a way of thinking, a way of living, and the way you are going, going in the opposite direction to God, not away from Him. What repentance is not? Let's just take a look at two examples. Uh, Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12 and verse 17. Hebrews 12, verse 17. Remember, this is talking about uh, Esau. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, remember he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Though he wanted that birthright, and he sought it with tears, but he didn't have true repentance, which is a change of mind. You know, you can't change circumstances, but you can change your thinking. Another example of what repentance is not, Matthew, the 27th chapter, Matthew 27. Here is the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Verse 3, Matthew 27. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. He threw down the 30 pieces of silver, the temple, and went out and hanged himself. Did he repent? It said he was remorseful. In the King James, says he repented himself. But the Greek word is metamelomai, meaning regret, not a change of mind. Well, that's the type of attitude we do not want. That's the sorrow of the world that works death. One real story, and this is some years ago, not uh, in the Charlotte area, of uh, a woman who came very close to committing the unpardonable sin. And she wrote me this letter. I want to share it with you. And just how close she came to sealing her conscience so that she could no longer repent. Dear Mr. Ames, I'm writing this letter to you in a very humble spirit. So much has happened since the last time I saw you, so I'll start at the beginning. 
After I left Texas, I was for a while in the right attitude. But I didn't do what you told me to do. Ministers tell people who have problems what to do for their benefit. But I didn't do what you told me to do. All I had to do was not pray one night, and the next night it was much easier to skip. Then before long, I wasn't studying. Then after that, I started doing things I knew was wrong, like eating pork and breaking God's Sabbath. Things kept getting worse for me. I haven't worked for seven months, and I know why. The family I'm living with is a young family, my age. In fact, they are my husband's cousins. Anyway, they had been quarreling for some time, in fact, practically every night. Just a couple of weeks ago, it got pretty bad. Then I saw myself. Really, I think, good for the first time. I knew I couldn't go on the way I was going. I was headed for the lake of fire. I wanted to change, but I didn't have the guts, excuse me, to stand up for what I knew was right. I knew I couldn't do it on my own. So I fasted two days, but I didn't get down on my knees. So I just lost three and a half pounds. I knew I had to get down on my knees, but my legs didn't want to bend. I had to force myself to get into that right position. Isn't it amazing that your character can so seal itself that it's so difficult for you to even get down on your knees? Mr. Ames, it was hard, but after I started praying earnestly, it was different. I asked God for a spirit of repentance, and that's what we all need to do. I know when you repent of something, you're really broken up over it. Well, I wasn't crying. I was sorry, and I wanted to change, but I couldn't make a tear come up to show that I was sorry. After I had asked God several times to give me the real spirit of repentance, he did, and I did cry. But it wasn't me who made the tears come. I realized, too, that just because I cry and say I'm sorry, it doesn't mean everything is roses. I know I'm going to grow all over again. And this is why I'm writing you. I want so desperately to do right and to live the way God wants me to, but I need help. I need to talk and counsel with God's own ministers. There are so many questions I need answered in God's viewpoint in my life. I realize now all the people I've hurt, and it makes me want to write everyone I've done wrong to and tell them how ashamed I am of myself. I know there's a church here in the city, and I sent... Uh, connected her with the pastor in that particular city. But a remarkable, heartfelt story from this woman who wanted to repent and found it so difficult to repent because she'd gone so wrong, so had habitually practiced a wrong way of living that was so difficult for her to even get down on her knees. And, of course, we need to make sure, as I've encouraged you before, that you make sure that you always pray every day you don't let one day go by without praying, and you need those who have knees to bend, and some people have uh, physical handicaps where they can't get down on their knees, but everyone who can needs to be on his knees every day, at least for a little while, and be praying a good, solid, I won't say a particular period of time, but I will say that uh, Dr. Meredith's admonition to ambassador students back in 1962 when I was a student to be praying a half an hour a day on your knees has been very helpful over the decades. I wouldn't be here today if I had not followed his instruction and been faithful 
in doing that for many years. It doesn't mean I didn't let a day go by. I did uh, without praying a half an hour on my knees, but I did not let a day go by without praying. And again, God can forgive whatever sins we commit if we're repentant. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. We need a godly sorrow and not a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And, of course, as we approach the Passover, we need to examine ourselves for that time. And I'm sure Dr. Meredith covered that in his sermon last week, which you heard. 1 Corinthians 11th chapter and verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. No, you don't want that. Now, when we examine ourselves and see the past year, all our mistakes, all our problems, all of our shortcomings, all of our weaknesses, all of the areas in which we failed to overcome, we still can admit that to God and still take the Passover in faith because we're repentant and we want to be forgiven and we want to renew our acceptance of Christ's shed blood. But let a man examine himself. 1 Corinthians 11:28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So, as I pointed out in the article last year, self-examination, a vital key to growth, that as a result of your self-examination, you should see the need to take the Passover, not an excuse or a reason not to take the Passover. You need to take the Passover if... Of course, you are baptized, and if you made that commitment in the first place. You see, there's a more fundamental commitment than just taking the Passover, and that takes place at baptism. That is when you count the cost. That's when you make your commitment. That's when you surrender yourself and demonstrate to God that, yes, you are committed. You're willing to bury the old man in immersion in a watery grave and come out to walk in newness of life, and then with the laying on of hands, receive God's Holy Spirit. What do you examine? Well, I won't go over the whole article, but I'll just mention those items that were listed last year in self-examination and preparation for the Passover. Examine yourself with respect to prayer. Have you let one day go by without praying? Do you pray morning, evening, at night, or evening, morning, and and noon, as David said in Psalm fifty-five, seventeen, Do you read God's Word? Is it a part of your way of life? You want that spiritual nourishment, that food? Or are you neglecting Bible study? Are you fasting? Very good. You're doing that today. You meant uh, you were forced. I would say you weren't forced to do that. You were encouraged to do that today. So if you hadn't fasted since the Day of Atonement, You'll be thankful. Thank God for the fast today. But is that a part of your regular way of thinking? Love for the brethren. Have you really shown that kindness and love throughout the past year as you approach the Passover? Have you made progress in overcoming? Can you look back and say, well, yes, God has helped me to grow in love or grow in patience or, or grow in mercy or thoughtfulness? or self-control, and you can thank God for the good things and the growth and the overcoming and the blessings that have taken place over the past year. But there may be areas in your life in which you did not progress in weaknesses in overcoming those that you know 
you need to overcome. Examine yourself with respect to growth in the new covenant. God is writing His laws on our hearts and on our minds. That's Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. That's the new covenant. That means we are living by those laws of how to love God and how to love neighbor. Examine yourself with respect to tithes and offerings. Maybe you're, you're not able to tithe, but are you not giving any offerings? But examine yourself with respect to that. And the admonitions of Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, where God says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So we have to examine ourselves with respect to each of those seven messages, Revelation 2 and 3. Have we left our first love? That's the Ephesus weakness. Or are we lukewarm? So we need to examine ourselves with respect to all seven of those churches in preparation for the Passover. Examine ourselves with respect to supporting of God's work. Is that prime? Is that a priority in our life to realize that, as we heard in the sermonette, we have that unique calling to preach the gospel to the world. And examine yourself with respect to repentance. Have you repented? Do you have a repentant attitude? Or are you resistant? Are you hard-hearted? Are you uncooperative? Are you argumentative? Let's turn to Second Corinthians, the seventh chapter. Second Corinthians 7. Here we have the contrast between the sorrow of the world and godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, and let's start in uh, verse 10. Remember that the Apostle Paul had sent probably the most corrective letter in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, of correcting the Corinthian church for its tolerance of sin, where there was incest or the... Um, young man had relations with his father's wife, his stepmother most likely, and uh, Paul gave a very strong corrective letter to, dis- to deliver that man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that he might be saved. And apparently that correction helped that young man. Apparently he did repent. And so Paul writes here in uh, verse, uh, what did I say, verse... Uh, 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Uh, I've experienced that, you know, as a teenager, the sorrow of the world. I got caught, and I was sorry that I got caught. I was embarrassed. I wasn't sorry for having committed the, the sin, but I was sorry for having gotten caught and being embarrassed and having to pay the penalty. That's the sorrow of the world that works death. The godly sorrow says, I want to make a change in my life. I don't want to repeat the same mistake. I don't want to repeat the same habit and sin. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 7. But for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, Now, this is the fruit of godly sorrow. What diligence it produced in you. Yes, you're not casual, you're not careless. You are diligent. You are making sure 
that you're doing what is right. You're staying close to God. You're praying. You're studying. You're loving your neighbor. What diligence is producing you? What clearing of yourselves? Well, you don't justify yourself, but you clear yourself by correcting wrongs in the past and making up if you can. If you've stolen, you don't, and you know who you stole from, you pay that person double or perhaps more what you stole it. I remember one time uh, years ago, I found, uh, I was working in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and I found a shirt that I had borrowed from a classmate back in college. I thought, oh, this is bad. I better, I actually got his address and mailed it back to him. It was an incredible act. I uh, I've got to search, I better not start confessing all my sins here, but I, I know that I have some books, I think, in my library that belong to someone else. And by the way, if some of you have my books, you could return them to me as well. <laughs> so, always put your name in your book. What clearing of yourselves. You've demonstrated that you want to do what's right. What indignation. Yes, you're angry at sin. The fear of the eternal is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy in the froward mouth do I hate, it says in Proverbs 8.13. So we are to abhor evil and love good. What indignation, what fear. Fear God, fear the consequences of doing evil. What vehement desire, a strong desire to do what's right. And what zeal, what vindication. In all these things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. The Corinthian congregation made dramatic changes. They no longer had this liberal, tolerant attitude towards sin. They took the correction from the Apostle Paul. They made changes in their attitude. They made changes in their behavior. And so we need to do the same. What zeal? And, of course, that reminds us of an admonition which we just referred to, but let's look at it in Revelation, the third chapter, as fruits of godly sorrow, zeal is one of them. Revelation, the third chapter, and, of course, the lukewarm church, as it says here, what does Christ tell them to do? Verse 19, Revelation 3, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him over, who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So have you seen the fruits of repentance in your own life? And has your repentance produced indignation uh, towards evil? Do you live with a godly fear and a strong desire to do what's right and a zeal to do God's work and to live his way of life? Of course, you remember what John the Baptist told the Pharisees when they came to his baptism there in Matthew 3, verse 7. He said, Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. So, brethren, ask God to produce within you the fruits of godly sorrow and repentance and confess your sins. What do you repent of? You repent of sin, 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. You repent of hostility towards God. Let's take a look at that in Romans, the 8th chapter. Romans 8, a memorization verse you all know. 
The carnal mind is enmity against God, it says in the King James, in the New King James. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. It is hostile. You repent of a hostile mind. You repent of a mind that is enmity against God. And, of course, the Apostle Paul said just up the, in the previous chapter, chapter 7, verse 22, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And he says, verse 25 or 24, O wretched man that I am. This is one of those elements of repentance we'll talk about here in a little while. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. But notice the next verse, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That doesn't mean we don't sin. We do sin from time to time. But the mental attitude is one of, if I find something wrong with me, I will confess that it's wrong, I will admit that it's wrong, and I will ask God forgiveness, and I will want to change. That's why there's no condemnation, because someone walking in the Spirit has that repentant attitude. And if something is pointed out that is wrong, in a microsecond, he's repented of that, and he's willing to change and to grow and to go in the right direction. So we need to walk in the Spirit and be, of course, close to God and close to Christ. So we repent of sin. We repent of hostility toward God. What else do we repent of? 1 John 2, verse 15. We repent of worldliness. And, of course, there are those religions who uh, uh, don't like to will reject dancing or music in some forms or whatever. And, of course, we've taught for decades that we want to recapture the true values in every area of life, whether it's dancing, whether it's uh, music, or whether it's entertainment. We want those true values. But the worldliness that uh, we find here in 1 John 2 is described in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You need the love, and I need the love of the Father in me. And that's Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. For all that is in the world, what is that? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Jesus was tempted in all those three points in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. But he did not give in to the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life, or the lust of the flesh. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. We need to repent of that kind of worldliness. We need to also repent of self. We just saw that the Apostle Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am. Of course, the classic example of repenting of self, in addition to the Apostle Paul, is that of Job. Let's turn back to the book of Job, just before the book of Psalms. Job. And, of course, it's amazing how Job's three friends sat with him silently for seven days. 
And Job is really solid about uh, his standards of righteousness, that he's going to stick to that form of righteousness, that he would not deny God, that he would be faithful. And, of course, he demonstrated that, and God knew that he would, and that's why he allowed Satan to test him. But Job still had one big lesson to learn. So in Job 38, uh, we find out after Elihu, the young man, he was not one of the three. Um, he had just talked to them earlier. If I, uh, that's chapter uh, 37, uh, where Elihu, the young man, really nails uh, Job with his, his uh, problem. And uh, the key verse, let me just give you that key verse before we go on to chapter 38. Uh, chapter 34, verse 31. It's a very profound lesson that we all need to learn, particularly if we're going through trials. Job was going through a trial, and he didn't, he felt unjustified at what was happening to him, that it wasn't, uh, he wasn't, wasn't deserved. So Elihu says all the other three wise men couldn't find the problem, but Elihu did. Verse 31, Job 34. For as anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. If you're going through a trial and you think it's undeserved, you need to read this verse and pray to God, that which I see, if I have done iniquity, Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. That's a repentant attitude. And Elihu uh, told Job that. And then after Elihu got through with him after three chapters, God gets into him and gives him strong correction. Chapter 33, 38, the Eternal answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? And where were you? Where, were I, where was I when God laid the foundations? I wasn't around. Job had spouted off all this knowledge that he had, but that knowledge was lacking. What was it lacking in? Well, after God got through with them, Job understood. Chapter 42, Job's repentance and restoration. Job 42, verse 1, Then Job answered the Eternal and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I, Job finally admits his weakness, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Job knew about God, but he didn't know the greatness and the glory and the power and the omnipotence of God. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I won't ask any of you, you know, to raise your hands, but it is the biblical example of solid, deep repentance. If you've never come to see yourself, 
that you are or have been vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. If you ask God to help you to see your human nature, who you are, what you are, what you've been, you will be like Job. You will say, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to change. And there are millions of people around the world who have not seen themselves, who think they're righteous and good, and don't even understand human nature, what human nature is. Human nature is a part, part, a part partly good and partly evil. And God, uh, after Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rather than the tree of life, humanity has gone its way of setting its own standards and saying, I will decide what's right and what's wrong. God is not in my picture. But that's the way that leads to death. So we've seen what we are to repent of, and we need a depth of repentance. Unger's Bible Dictionary has a good description. It's actually, this one is the new Unger's Bible Dictionary of repentance. Repentance contains as essential elements, one, a genuine sorrow toward God on account of sin. And it gives uh, many uh, scriptures here. Two, an inward repugnance to sin necessarily followed by actually forsaking it. Three, humble self-surrender to the will and service of God. Repentance, it should be observed, has different stages of development. In its lowest and most imperfect form, it may arise from fear of consequences or penalty of sin. If it goes no farther than this, it is simply remorse and must end in despair, just as it did with Esau and just as it did with Judas. But I've given you this analogy before, but for those of you new, I'll give the analogy again and to show the various levels and, and depth of repentance. The analogy is if you were told by a doctor you were smoking cigarettes, you know, a couple packs a day, and the doctor says, look, uh, you know, you've you got lung cancer. Unless you, you quit smoking, you're going to die. Uh-oh. He's motivated to make a change in his life. Maybe he stops with struggling and uh, physically, maybe finds all, some other substitutes or whatever. He stopped smoking. But what motivated him was fear of the consequences. And that's why John the Baptist said, Who's caused, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? And frankly, that motivated me when I began starting to know a little about the truth and seeing... Uh, the booklet, 1975 in Prophecy, and seeing those uh, depictions of bodies being uh, bulldozed into graves, which has happened in Haiti and in other places around the world. I didn't want to be a part of that. And I was motivated out of fear, initially, to make some changes. But that's not repentance. That's just a perhaps an initial step in its lowest and most imperfect form, may arise from fear of consequences or penalty of sin. So maybe the individual smoking gives up his cigarettes, but he still needs to go to a deeper level and see why is smoking wrong. Because it defiles the temple of God's Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. You're defiling the temple of God's Spirit, and if you're lusting after it, which most likely you are, you're committing idolatry. You are worshiping a cigarette. Covetousness is idolatry. It tells us in Colossians, the third chapter. 
You are an idolater. And so that second level of repentance has got to be, I see not only do I have to give up smoking to save my life, I need to see that that smoking is a sin by biblical standards. And it's repugnant. And you find a repulsion, a repugnance for, of sin. Then it goes a step deeper. Let's turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And David, of course, his prayer of repentance. By the way, I just want to encourage song leaders. Sometimes we sing this song in kind of a, an upbeat manner in regular song service. Uh, I like to lead this, uh, you know, in our hymnal, Psalm 51 at the Passover. And it has more somber and deeper meaning. So please, uh, song leaders, uh, take that admonition. David says in Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He didn't ask for justice. He's asking for mercy. He's acknowledging his transgressions. Verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Now, wait a minute. What's he saying here? Against you, you only have I sinned. The man with the smoking gave up smoking for fear of death. He finally sees that the sin is wrong. But did he see that he was sinning against God? And that when you come to see that you spit in Jesus Christ's face, symbolically, metaphorically, then you are more deeply convicted of your sin and of your way of life. And that by purposely transgressing the physical laws, which are damaging your body, you were symbolically laying stripes on Christ's back, whereas by his stripes you were healed. And you understand, wait a minute, my sin is not just something that's bad and and, uh, has bad consequences, but I have spit in God's face. And to such, you are dead on the spot. The wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when you see that, as David said, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, why did he say against God he had sinned? He had caused the death of Uriah. He would committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had transgressed two of the Ten Commandments. Why did he sin against God? Because God gave the Ten Commandments and said, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Against you, you you only have I sinned and done this evil in sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Then later on, he says in verse 10, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Then, after I make these changes, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted unto you. So we've seen these examples of deeper sorrow, deeper repentance. And there's one more level of repentance. Not only are you convicted of sinning against God, but... Let's turn to Romans 2 and verse 4. You see that 
God could have, in your past life, dispatched you, let you die uh, earlier in your life. And uh, I, I think I've told you the story before. When I was meditating on God's law, and it says, He that smites his father or mother shall surely be put to death. And I had slapped my father one time, and you know, in age 25, that was when I was a boy, I was convicted of it and realized, look, I could have been put to death, whatever age it was, age 8 or age 11, and yet God allowed me to live from age 11 up till age 25 till I could acknowledge my sin and be able to be convicted of my sin. Technically, I could have been put to death for my sin long ago as a boy. Because that's what the Scripture says. And there are many other statutes and judgments which specifically give the death penalty. And yet, God allowed me to live beyond that time, being patient with me over the years till I came to understand, yes, I need to honor my father and mother. I had disrespected my father and my mother. I look back and realize my mother took care of me, changing my diapers, and oh boy, when I began to see... You know, over my past life and the kindness and love and care that my parents had given me, I just bawled and realized, you know, I, God has been merciful and patient with me all these years. And so in Romans 2 and verse 4, he says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering? Yes, God was patient with me over all those years, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So God's goodness over all these years, you see that contrast between your sinfulness and God's love, patience, and mercy toward you so that you could come eventually in your life to a place of repentance. We've seen that fasting is associated with repentance. We think of King David who fasted. We think of Moses and Elijah and Jesus who Fasted 40 days, Moses twice, and of course the vision on Mount Tabor, if that's where it was, Matthew 17, where Jesus said, I'm going to show you the kingdom of God before you die, and saw Jesus glorified in Moses and Elijah. All three of those had fasted 40 days, except Elijah had fa- and Moses had fasted twice. And you think about Cornelius, the first Gentile, what was he doing when God told him that to send for the apostle Peter. He was fasting. And uh, he feared God and gave alms to the people. That's in Acts 10. I won't turn there. You know the other national example of repentance back in Jonah where the only historical evidence or example of a nation state ever repenting is that of Nineveh. And the king called the nation and the animals to fast and have sackcloth and ashes. And God changed his mind. He did not bring destruction upon Nineveh. They followed the warning. So on this day of fasting, brethren, I encourage you to confess your sins, if you haven't already, and to say, perhaps, I haven't prayed like I should, I haven't studied the Bible like I should, and I've sinned against you, Father, And I'm sorry. 
As it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In 1 John 1 and verse 9. So in today's sermon, we briefly reviewed the purpose of the church-wide fast. And we look forward to spiritual growth and conversion for us and our scattered brethren. We look forward to open doors and the resources to fulfill the mission Christ has given us to preach the gospel. We also examined the attitude of repentance. So brethren, determine to repent of your sins. And before the Passover, make a heartfelt commitment to always maintain a teachable and a repentant attitude. And I suggest before the day is over, if you have the time, the opportunity to read Psalm 51 slowly and carefully. And remember Micah 6, 8 that we read, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's be committed to maintain a repentant attitude until the return of Christ. Let's go forward with faith, boldness, and humility, and God will give us the wonderful and powerful blessings to fulfill his work and his will.